This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So the topic of today's talk is awakening. What is awakening? Enlightenment, liberation, freedom, nibbana. Are these terms synonymous? Or do they mean something quite different? The term awakening to me has a rather day-to-day ring to it, implying an ordinary action, waking up out of a sleep state, waking up out of a dream, waking up to how things really are. The Buddha may have intentionally used the image of waking up to counter the prevailing assumptions about a mystical goal, to emphasize the clarity of seeing things just as they really are. It's quite possible, I think, to tease out some distinctions between these various terms, but in this talk today, I'm going to use the terms relatively interchangeably simply to refer to the goal of the path. Where does this practice lead? What is your goal? You might say the end of suffering. Well, that's a good Buddhist answer, isn't it? But then we have to ask, what is suffering? And what is that end? What is the end of suffering? So this question about suffering and the end of suffering lands us squarely in the domain of one of the primary Buddhist teachings, the Four Noble Truths. In the very first teaching that the Buddha gave in his first sermon, he articulated the Four Noble Truths. And he said, Bhikkhus, These two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. What two? The pursuit of sensual happiness in sensual pleasures, which is low, vulgar, the way of worldlings, ignoble, unbeneficial, and the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. So in this one sentence, we have a series of these terms describing awakening, what one awakens to. Here he's saying one has awakened to the middle way, which is the way to the end of suffering. And then in this first teaching, he went on to teach the Four Noble Truths, which is suffering, that there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, and that cause is craving. The end of suffering is realized with the ending of craving, and there is a way 
to the ending of craving. And then he said, So long as my knowledge and vision of these four truths as they really are was not thoroughly purified, I did not claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world. But when my knowledge and vision of these four truths as they really are was thoroughly purified in this way, then I claimed to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world. The knowledge and vision arose in me. Unshakable is my liberation of mind. This is my last birth. Now there is no more renewed existence. So in this very first discourse of the Buddha, he not only introduced this primary teaching on suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering, and the way to the end, but we find many terms referring to awakening, freedom, liberation, knowledge. But awakening is not described as a transcendent experience that happens in a moment of rapturous bliss or an explosion of insight. It is clearly described as a thorough understanding of the fact of things, the truth of suffering, and a waking up out of that delusion that doesn't see the fact of things, waking up out of the delusion that misconstrues experience so that we wake up to realize the reality of life. It is an experience of knowledge, of clear knowing. Perhaps the important question is not if someone is enlightened, but to ask enlightened about what? What are we enlightened about? We wake up to the fact of suffering. We wake up to the cause of suffering, its end, and the way to its end. We awaken to the way we meet this world. Does your way of relating to life perpetuate suffering or release? What is an awakened relationship to life? an awakened relationship to the sensory encounters. When we look at the mind, the body, and the world, we see that experience is impermanent, it's in flux, it's changing. There is suffering there. Even pleasant experiences can be suffering if we are attached to them. When we look squarely at the world, we recognize that we cannot fix it. We're not going to end aging, illness, death, loss, cruelty, ignorance. We're not going to polish up the world and make it an ideal place to be. We recognize the truth that there is suffering. This is not a utopia. There is suffering. When we awakened to this fact and awakened to the impermanence of experience, we realize that things are not a basis for our happiness. They're not a reliable place to rest. And we might experience a 
a profound transformation of consciousness, a radical but subtle shift from attraction to disenchantment, from clinging to non-clinging. For some people, terms such as dispassion, detachment, disenchantment, make us think that it implies an aversive response, an aversive withdrawal from life. But in the Buddhist context, these terms do not suggest a disconnection from life. Instead, they suggest a liberating transformation to the very same experiences that we encounter. Disenchantment, nibbida in Pali, describes the absence of the seductive force of titillating desire. It's not an aversive rejection. It's a simple suspension of fascination things. The mind that is disenchanted sheds its entanglements that shackle it to the psychophysical process that continuously seeks gratification in things that actually cannot bring gratification. Ajahn Shah, a Thai forest master, likened disenchantment in the mind to unscrewing a bolt where the mind is unwound and untangled from entrenched distortions of attention. In this disenchantment, the mind stops seeking satisfaction in worldly things simply because it knows it's not possible to find lasting happiness there. This is an important part of the perception that allows the mind to turn away from the habitual fascination with sensory stimuli. Now this other term I used, detachment, implies the ease of a mind that is not adhering, not fixated, not identified with the fleeting stream of lived events. There's a definite quality of release. What was confined and caught becomes unbolted, unhooked, unattached, free from entangling reactions there can be a calm equanimity that arises towards all formations, towards all encounters, towards all experiences. We might continue to perceive phenomena, the world, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, but whatever we perceive, we experience it as impermanent. We know that it's not the basis for our happiness, and it is empty of eternal self-existence. There is no desire to perpetuate more and more craving for ephemeral sensory experience or craving for existence that sustains the rounds of suffering. The desire arises to realize the end of kama, to get off the treadmill of samsara. Now this other term, dispassion, implies the ending of suffering, the absence of passion. In Pali, viraga means not lusting after, not getting caught up in things. Things are happening due to causes and conditions. 
It's happening just because it's what's happening. It's not your fault. It's almost not your business. Clearly seeing the impermanent, unsatisfactory and empty nature of the mind and the body, we turn away to glimpse something beyond conditioning. And we might, in a flash of insight, when clinging ceases, realize something beyond the describable and analyzable factors of mind and matter. It, it is though the mind peels away from the incessant barrage of conditioned mental and material contexts. It is naturally drawn toward the most peaceful and sublime perception, the deathless liberation. Now the suttas describe that at this point, the meditator's mind is said to shrinks back from the mental and material phenomena, turns back from it, rolls away from it, and is not drawn toward it. And either equanimity or revulsion toward it is established in him. Just as a cock's feather or a strip of sinew thrown into a fire shrinks away from it, turns back from it, rolls away from it, and is not drawn toward it. It's an interesting image to consider this mind that turns away from mental and material objects. And what does the mind realize then? What does it turn toward? Perhaps a vast expression of peace. The possibility of resting in an ultimate, inexpressible realization of Nibbana. The Buddha said, Whatever the phenomena through which beings think of seeking their self-identity, it turns out to be transitory. It becomes false, for what lasts for a moment is deceptive. The state that is not deceptive is Nibbana, that is, what men of worth know to be real. With this insight into reality, their hunger ends, cessation, total calm. Essentially, the mind completely lets go and experiences release. Then later, the mind returns to ordinary perception. But you may find that a deep shift has occurred. The conditioned processes of mind and body will no longer feel like a strong bond, perhaps just an old, tiring habit. The chains of craving and attachment will have loosened. The mind is infused with a profound depth of equanimity. And the way of relating to experience will have changed from an interaction based on self-identity and clinging to an infinitely spacious clarity regarding all things. Now, there may be many different aims or intentions that brought you each into this room today. People turn to meditation for many different purposes, sometimes for health benefits, sometimes to meet interesting people, sometimes just to learn something new and keep our minds active, sometimes to enhance our performance, to uh, make things easier, more comfortable in our lives, sometimes to work with grief, 
anger issues, mild addictions, or chronic self-judgment. Perhaps more people come to meditation to solve personal issues. Perhaps that's more common than the number of people who come to meditation in order to experience and realize the freedom that this path leads to. The Buddhist teachings point to a freedom or an awakening that proposes a radically different way of relating to the world, a way of living that ends greed, a way of living that ends hatred, and a way of living that ends delusion. Just imagine your own mind free from those corrupting forces of greed, hate, and delusion. Free from lust and craving, free from irritation, envy, remorse, and anger, free from conceit and selfishness, restlessness, and ignorance. Surely you've all experienced moments when there were no defilements that were operating. Imagine those moments when you've experienced very wholesome, pure states of mind. Imagine them lasting. Not being pushed out by some corruption. Imagine that inner peace permeating every decision and every interaction and every encounter that you have. Oddly, few people in this world want to awaken. Most people seek dullness, distraction, and comfort more often than clarity, wisdom, and freedom. There were actually more people in this town who spent the day gossiping and watching TV than meditating. That's not a surprising thing to you, probably. But even in the Buddhist time, there were few people who were really interested in awakening. And the Buddha once told his chief disciple, Venerable Sariputta, Sariputta, whether I teach the Dhamma in brief or whether I teach it in detail, or whether I teach it both in brief and in detail, those who understand are hard to find. Sometimes when I give a talk about awakening or enlightenment, people get a little annoyed or even angry. And sometimes it may seem rather irrelevant, especially compared to some of the urgent personal issues that cause a lot of pain and stress in our lives. For some people, hearing about a goal that seems virtually impossible or at best far off, can fuel feelings of self, of worthlessness, of self-judgment. But for other people, it can spark a kind of ambition, even a kind of arrogance. And for others, it can spark confusion, comparison, perplexity, wondering, what is this? Is it possible? Doubting it. Wondering, is there anybody that's enlightened? Is anybody here enlightened? Is the teacher enlightened? 
But for some people, hearing about awakening, hearing about enlightenment is deeply inspiring. Like a finger pointing to the moon, for a moment we stop focusing on the finger and glance toward the moon. We let go of our fascination with the techniques that we're learning and worrying if we're doing it right. We let go of our focus on the troubles we're facing and how we might fix them. We let go of the the concern with momentary conditions that we're encountering, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. And we look beyond towards something awesome. We get in touch with an inspired sense of purpose. The Buddhist path is quite profound. It's a path that embraces virtue, that cultivates the mind, and that leads to a wisdom that ends greed, hate, and delusion. But there can be a great deal of confusion about awakening. The Pali term for awakening is bodhi. Discussions about awakening, bodhi, and spiritual attainments often end with people more or less shrugging their shoulders and asking, who really knows? Who would be a reliable authority on this subject of awakening? Certainly the followers of any great guru are not going to be reliable authorities because they're invested in the dynamics of a particular spiritual circle. Certainly we are not even authorities about our own experiences. Because how can we be sure? Even in the Buddhist times, some bhikkhus were said to overestimate their attainments. It seemed that in one situation, a number of bhikkhus approached the Buddha and declared their final knowledge in his presence. And then a lay person approached the Buddha and said, Really? Were they actually enlightened? Or did they misdeclare, did they misperceive their experiences? And the Buddha said that when those bhikkhus declared final knowledge in my presence, there were some who declared final knowledge rightly, and there were some who declared final knowledge because they overestimated themselves. Therein, when bhikkhus declare final knowledge rightly, their declaration is true. But when bhikkhus declare final knowledge because they overestimate themselves, the Tathagata thinks, let me teach them the Dhamma. And then in the discourse, he goes on to teach the Dhamma. There can be some value, I believe, for not hiding our spiritual successes. There are times when it can be very helpful to share our experience of awakening with the world. But how can we share our highest realizations without conceit corrupting the perception and without overestimating the attainments and without confusing people who have not had the experience? In one discourse, the Buddha warned that if the I concept arises Through claiming enlightenment, it's not enlightenment. He said, And when this venerable one regards himself thus, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbana, 
I am without clinging, that too is declared to be a clinging. So how would a wise person describe or declare their awakening? There was one situation where Sariputta indicated to another monastic that he had no doubt or perplexity in the Dhamma and the discipline. And this bhikkhu, this monastic, went and reported to the Buddha that Venerable Sariputta had declared final knowledge. And And what's recorded in the discourse is a relatively stock declaration, which says, destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more for this state of being. And so the Buddha called Sariputta to his presence and repeated the report and said, I heard you said this. Was it true? Did you indeed declare final knowledge in this way? And Venerable Sariputta said, Venerable Sir, I did not state the matter in those terms and phrases. And then the Buddha gave an interesting reply. He said, In whatever way, Sariputta, a clansman declares final knowledge, what he has declared should be understood as such. This is an interesting exchange because the Buddha was not quibbling over semantics, which words he used. He seems to be encouraging a clearly understood declaration of awakening. So that if there is a declaration of awakening, it should be understood as such. And then the dialogue between the the Buddha and Venerable Sariputta continues. And Sariputta is, at first, quite hesitant to speak. But gradually, when repeatedly nudged by the Buddha with one question after another... Venerable Sariputta gains confidence that there are many ways that he could describe and declare his awakening and his final knowledge. And finally, he drops all the circumspect responses to the Buddha's questions and boldly states, I have no perplexity in regards to the taints spoken of by the ascetic. I do not doubt that they have been abandoned in me. And this is remembered as him roaring his lion's roar. Now, I'm often asked the question, do you know anybody who's enlightened? Are you enlightened? Have you experienced Nibbana for yourself? Now, of course, it's a slightly inappropriate question because what would somebody do with the answer? What would it mean if I declared my enlightenment here, would that impress you? (laughs) Would it inspire you? It might irritate some people. Would it irritate you? Would it spark judgment or comparison or envy? Would you believe it? Would you not believe it? One of my mentors, um, Christopher Titmus experimented some decades ago with declaring his freedom quite openly and easily in his Dhamma talks. And he he did it not arrogantly. It was a a simple matter-of-fact description of his lived experience of freedom. And I found his statements to be very inspiring 
very clear. They were powerful pointers to a profound depth that's possible in this life. But wow, was there a strong backlash in the Vipassana community. Most teachers will not answer the question, and certainly not with a personal reference or a personal description. Although those who teach about enlightenment or teach about awakening may do so, and they might mention things in a way that's a little bit more general. And then over time, as students, we get an inkling or a sense Are they teaching from direct experience? And we start to just tune in to uh, a a sense, maybe something we can't know, but we might get a sense of if they've lived, if they're living from the depth of their experience. Now, when I work with different teachers, I'm not very interested in assessing the, the level of their awakening because... It's not my concern. But there is some assessment that goes on because as students, we need to discern if if there's something to learn from a teacher, if they have something to teach us. For me, it would be a mistake to follow instructions from somebody who, though they might mean well, really don't know where the path is heading. There are plenty of well-meaning teachers who have credentials and communication skills, but simply don't have the personal experience of the goal to comprehend the subtleties of the path that lead to that goal. I can assure you that over the years I've received plenty of well-intended but misguided instructions. It wasn't that they were bad instructions, it was just that they were primarily influenced by the teacher's personal and worldly interests rather than an experiential clarity regarding liberation and the path to liberation. But I should probably backtrack a bit here and ask some basic questions. And I'd like you to contemplate these questions. Notice if an answer pops into your mind or not. Do you think awakening is an experience that occurs in time? Is awakening perhaps a state of being that's always accessible? A perception that can be recaptured, re-recognized, or called forth at will? Is awakening an attribute of a person? If so, is it a temporary or permanent aspect? Does it reside in that person's perception and their character? Is it related to their experience? So is awakening the same as or different than other Buddhist accomplishments? Is awakening the same as knowledge or different? Is it the same as wisdom or insight?
Is it the same as equanimity or non-clinging or non-identification? Is it an experience of oneness or union with the divine? Is the enlightenment of the Buddha the same experience as what Hindus and Christian mystics describe? Are they describing the same thing or something different? Does awakening arise automatically with an experience of emptiness or a clarity and insight into not-self? If so, does that mean that everyone who has had an experience of emptiness is awakened? And if not, What's the distinction between an insight into emptiness and awakening? Is there just one enlightenment moment in a lifetime? Or are there many that occur in a lifetime? If there are many, are there stages and levels to enlightenment that have a predictable sequence of events? And how would you know if you were awakened? And how would you recognize it if somebody else was? Is it a private internal experience that only the individual would know for themselves? Or does it affect behavior and personality? Through the course of practice, many spiritual experiences occur. Which ones are awakening experiences? Which ones are the genuine article? I think it's worth considering some of these questions, even if we don't have answers. And even if we might not, as a group, be able to even agree upon the right answers but just to consider them and to get a sense of what assumptions you have, what your views are. I have heard students confuse awakening with many states in meditation, with concentration states, with faith-based states, with insights into impermanence or not-self, with an experience of being one with everything, or with the heart opening in unconditional love, even perceptual distortions that come with concentrated meditation have sometimes been confused with awakening, experiences of profound luminosity and brightness of mind. But the Buddha did not equate final liberation with any momentary spiritual experience. Awakening is described through a result. The result is the ending of craving and clinging, conceit and ignorance. Perhaps the most succinct definition of awakening is the complete eradication of greed, hate and delusion. In the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha said, 
That which is the exhaustion of greed, of hate, and of delusion is called Nibbana. One of the things that I appreciate about the Theravada Buddhist model are the four stages of progressive enlightenment. And these four stages of enlightenment as a model for awakening have a a certain value that that I appreciate because it restrains the tendency to be satisfied with minor attainments, to be overly impressed with temporary achievements. It restrains the tendency to stop short of the goal. Because many exciting attainments occur, but they're really only impressive from the perspective of the person who's never experienced it before. This may be one reason why the early stages of a meditator's practice tend to be the most insight-packed phase. But a wise practitioner will not rest content with the relatively minor accomplishments of rapture, concentration, bliss, or luminosity. When spiritual practitioners don't understand the results that are associated with awakening, such as the fetters that are abandoned, the defilements that are abandoned with each stage of development, then they might be satisfied with relatively minor attainments. I find that it is often a difficult moment when a student proclaims their accomplishments. How does one skillfully respond? Too abrupt a response could be disappointing and devastating for a student. Too enthusiastic a response could be interpreted as as thinking that the confirming the experience as being more significant than it is. I spent some years living in India with Punjaji, and he was quite famous as a teacher who was in, offered very enthusiastic support for many different kinds of awakenings. Unfortunately, many of his students only stayed with him for brief visits and might misinterpret their experience as an ultimate realization. Usually, though, some combination of encouragement for the attainment and some instruction to take the student further is sufficient to encourage most students to keep nurturing the practice, to continuing the development. But much of what is touted as enlightenment in our contemporary spiritual marketplace is is not much that I find very impressive. Although perhaps the accomplishments are greater than the average person, they're usually relatively minor compared with the potential of the path. Christopher Titmus used to advise students to wait a year and a day before assessing the significance of their spiritual experiences. I think waiting five years and five days would be better because I found that some experiences can seem quite profound in the moment. Experiences of emptiness, the absence of certain defilements, the non-arising of suffering, and the pervasive experience of equanimity. These can linger sometimes for years. 
So we must test our insights and our attainments in lived experience, in the face of changing worldly conditions, in the face of pain and illness, loss and death, exhaustion, financial strain, stress, betrayal, work demands, and insult. We must test our realizations to see if the mind remains at peace, or if, under stress, it once again protects the concept of self, defends our illusory identities or possessions, and forgets the simple fact that conditioned phenomena is impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. In the middle-length discourses, the Buddha said, you who seek the recluse's status do not fall short of the goal while there is still more work to be done. There are many moments in a day when we are lost in thought, caught up in the delusion of planning and judging and fantasy. We can notice the craving, the identification, the energetic contraction that keeps us lost in a story of our lives. Notice those moments of contraction because they're moments of suffering. When we observe suffering, when we bring our attention to know this first noble truth, then we are working with the path of realization. But also, we'll find that there are many moments in a day that are free from delusion. Don't pass over those moments of mindfulness, those lovely moments when the mind is free from grasping, clinging, and delusion. In the middle-length discourses, the Buddha said, When I knew and saw thus, my mind was liberated from the taint of sensual desire, from the taint of being, and from the taint of ignorance. When it was liberated, there came the knowledge, it is liberated. I directly knew, birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. Let's have a few quiet minutes to let this settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.